This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So you guys, ordinarily, when we have this initial conversation, we get played in by music from the wonderful Sophia Yan. But today, we have something better. Sophia Yan! Woo! In the Flash. But there's no piano here. There's no piano. I know. We could have got a piano for you. Could you well, sing it for us? Just just kidding. We are so excited that you're here. For those who don't know, Sophia is the China correspondent for The Telegraph, in addition to doing the music for <laughs> Rational Security. She's multi-talented. To be clear, you've been playing for Rational Security longer than you've been at The Telegraph, but you have been in China for longer than you've been playing for us. So. I, I think it's fair to say that the telegraph hired you because they heard of your awesome piano skills For from sure. the podcast right that was on your you, resume i have to say <laughs> i have to say over the last couple of years i've met more and more people who say oh are you the one on that podcast yeah. and i'm and like I, I am <laughs> do you have a favorite fake band name that Shane has used. <laughs> They're all so good. Oh, oh sure. like, are they? Are sure they all so they good? Are. <laughs> <laughs> They're really not. So here's a hilarious story about Sophia playing the piano at Uh-oh. our house. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Back when Sophia uh, lived at uh, Shea Wittes for a while, and she used to practice on our piano, and a friend of mine came over with his very small daughter, and I introduced everybody in the room and uh, Sophia was sitting at the piano playing and I said and this is Sophia Yen she's and house guest was complicated living in the basement blah 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 with comp- so I just said she's our pianist and everybody <laughs> went on with the conversation as though that was a perfectly normal thing to say and I later got a call from the guy who had brought his daughter over that when they left she said to him Daddy, when people have their own pianists, do they play for them all the time or only some of the time? <laughs> Sophia just follows people around <laughs> making yeah. music. Yeah. Well, we're very glad you're here today. Thanks for having me. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Should Rod Stay or Should He Go edition. I'm Shane Harris with apologies to the clash. But it's just a rod pun kind of week. Oh, yeah. So many rod puns. So many good ones. Spare the rod. There are two good ones. <laughs> There's two good ones. Spare the rod and the title and of this episode. That's it. <laughs> That's it. End of list. <laughs> there are two good ones. Uh, I'm Shane Hears. We're here in the New Jungle studio with, of course, Sophia Yan, Tamara Kaufman, Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Ben Wittes is joining us from a remote location. Undisclosed. So, undisclosed, yeah. So there's technically... Undisclosed. My couch <laughs> at home. <laughs> Your couch at home. It's classified. Just couldn't be bothered. Um, it's been a big week. 
And it's only Tuesday. We're recording on Tuesday. Just want to say it to be clear, because by the time this podcast comes out on Wednesday... God only knows what will have happened. The Justice Department (laughs) may have been dissolved. We may be living in an era of peace, prosperity, and freedom. Oh. That's true. That's that's, that's alliteration. An era of alliteration. Yes. That's near alliteration. Isn't it? Peace, prosperity, and war? No, era and alliteration. Oh, yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Were they call that assonance? Yes. Yeah. I did really well in high school English. I can tell. Yeah. That's why you're a writer now, Shane. Sure is. <laughs> uh, this week on the podcast, will Rod Rosenstein remain as the deputy attorney general? And what does that mean for the Russia probe he oversees? Tensions hit a fever pitch with China amid an escalating trade war. And the president addresses the U.N. General Assembly. And at times it felt like a stand-up routine. And we'll talk about why that was. (laughs) Um, First, let's jump in with uh, the big news of the week. So uh, in case you missed it, I see why – whatever, I see why am I. I don't know how anybody who listens to this podcast would have missed this. But there was a period yesterday on Monday where it was not at all clear whether the deputy attorney general was resigning, whether he had been fired, what that meant for the future of the Russia probe, who would take his place. Uh, Suffice to say, uh, I wouldn't say exactly it was a false alarm. We can talk a little bit about that. But Trump and Rod Rosenstein are going to talk on Thursday to decide uh, what happens, as the president likes to say. Um, Susan, first let me just get an initial quick reaction. I mean, just try and recap for us briefly the kind of crisis moment that everybody was in on Monday where it was highly confused as to what was happening with Rod and and kind of like why that put people so much on edge. Yeah, so it's hard to reconstruct all of the events of the day. Um, I think in some, it was a super dumb morning for all of us. <laughs> it was set off by Axios. Super dumb morning. Super that dumb. Sums it up. Just a dumb thing. Um, Axios reported in the morning that Rod Rosenstein had, quote, verbally resigned to John Kelly. And so the report was Rod Rosenstein has resigned. Uh, other news outlets reported that Rod Rosenstein expected to be fired. Others said there was no way he was resigning and he was going to make them fire him. Then there was sort of this almost like OJ in the white Bronco-esque scene of Rod Rosenstein en route to the White House, you know, with, with everybody in rapt attention. It turns out for a previously scheduled principals committee meeting, so literally for nothing. Um, So we had this sort of very tumultuous morning that kind of ended with nothing, either because the story was wrong from the outset or there was confusion or Trump was in New York or just because it reflects kind of the general chaos. Um, you know, but but safe to say we don't know the fate of of the deputy attorney general. This all sort of harkens back to the big news break on Friday, uh, which is that uh, it's at some point sort of in the week following the firing of Jim Comey, uh, Rod Rosenstein either being sarcastic as he claims or according to other individuals, maybe in the room, maybe not in the room, uh, being serious, proposed one, uh, uh, attempting to convince cabinet members to uh, invoke the 25th Amendment in order to remove of the president um, and also suggested recording the president uh, at some point. Um, And so sort of immediately after that news broke, there was kind of an expectation, well, Rod Rosenstein is definitely going to get fired. Um, And then he wasn't. And then, okay, everything kind of got started on uh, on Monday.
30-day warning, and now we're back to having kind of no idea what's going on. Um, so I don't know that that's a useful recap. but Right. So that, that is that, that kind of puts us <clears throat> where we are now, and we're going to wait and see what happens on Thursday. But let's just kind of game this out. Imagine that he had been removed or that he is removed on Thursday. What are the – what do we know? And Ben, maybe you want to weigh in on this too – what is the next big question of what happens to the Russia probe, right? It's not that the, the investigation would suddenly halt, right? Oversight of it would switch to another official. Things would keep going. But politically speaking, we would be in a moment where the president has removed the deputy attorney general, which up to this moment before he'd be removing him because he was plotting to possibly try and get him out of office, would have been seen as a red line, right, Ben, to – uh, to members of Congress and even some Republicans, not just Democrats, that the president was essentially trying to begin the shutdown of the investigation into his own campaign. So red line is a good word for it if you mean red line in the sense of Obama's Syria red line with chemical weapons, right? Which is to say it's never been clear how red and how much of a line the move against uh, Rosenstein would be for certain congressional Republicans. They've kind of said, don't do it. And they've said it would be a red line. But uh, a lot of the body language is otherwise, including, by the way, yesterday. So what would it mean? I think in the, in the immediate sense, it would not mean all that much in the sense that the reg that Mueller operates under uh, provides that he does not have to consult with anybody in the Justice Department on routine matters, only on you know significant investigative steps. And so I think as a practical matter, the Mueller investigation would continue as before unless and until, and this is the big unless and until, somebody who was in the position that Rod was in, whether it's Noel Francisco or someone else vis-a-vis the investigation, decides to not give consent for something that may require his consent, decides to not give resources when, when asked, or decides to otherwise throw a wrench in, or in the extreme case, follows an order by the president to fire the special counsel. So I think the Effect, the, the effects on the investigation are uncertain. They probably would not be immediate. They could range from little or none to dire. And uh, the message that would certainly be sent uh, is a message that the administration is removing the person who has assiduously protected the investigation, both from internal administration pressure, i.e. the president, and really particularly in Congress, as the investigation has come under pressure from from Congress, uh, Rod Rosenstein has been the one to go up there and say, you know, this is being done under my supervision, with my approval, there is no misconduct here. And he has really been you know, for all my copious many differences with him, he's really been, you know, very effective and careful and honorable about that. And so, 
you know, I think it is a it is a big wild card, and it would be a very dangerous moment if Rod Rosenstein were removed. So I think one thing that is worth sort of underscoring is we have been contemplating this exact scenario for well over a year at this point, right? Rosenstein gets fired or he resigns. And we actually still don't know the precise answer of what would happen. We don't know how the Vacancies Reform Act operates. If he's fired, if he resigns, does Noel Francisco have to recuse himself, right? I mean, it actually is sort of remarkable to think that all this time, the White House has had all this time to prepare. The rest of us has had all this time to prepare. And yet Monday morning, when it seemed as though once again it might be an imminent, it was a bunch of people sort of looking at each other saying, what exactly would happen now? Right, which is, and Tammy, that seems to me such a remarkable kind of thing considering we've been contemplating it. But the change, the, the different factor here. Being, of course, that if he's removed, it's for something totally unrelated to – well, not unrelated to the Russia probe, but for a different kind of cause. I mean, one, one question I had for you is, I mean, isn't the president completely justified in firing Rod Rosenstein if these allegations are true? I mean, he's talking about surreptitiously recording the president and effectively mounting a group to remove him from office. It would seem to me any president would fire that person right away and, and justifiably. Absolutely. I. I think that what Susan's pointing to is the difficulty that the president has in calculating the political cost benefit uh, equation in firing Rod Rosenstein, even given that wonderful excuse that was dropped in his lap by uh, the New York Times last week. And, you know, let me parenthetically say I think the New York Times and New York Times reporters were doing their jobs to report what they had. And, oh, you know. of course. This whole backlash against the Times for people being mad at them reporting them is just absurd to me. Right. And I think if the fear is that Trump wants to find an excuse to fire Rosenstein, there are myriad excuses he could come up with and he didn't need the New York Times for that. But I think that part of what makes the political calculus here difficult for him and part of why it's so challenging for all the rest of us to game out what this means is because this would be a decision from which there's no turning back in certain ways, just as the firing of Comey was a decision that Trump made in the context of this Russia investigation from which there was no turning back. It would close off certain pathways. Um, it may not it, – it may open new ones, but it will change things in a way that um, – is irreversible. And I think that knowing that is partly what's holding Trump back. First, because he's basically a risk-averse guy in general when it when it has come to this. And the firing of Comey has been a big exception, actually. And we've seen him step back from the brink on all kinds of things, including just over the last week, declassifying all the documents behind the, um, the FISA warrant on Carter Page. So I think it just raises the political risk for him because he can't predict the outcomes and he knows it'll be a big deal and that's why he hasn't done it. I think the other thing we see in all this back and forth of did he resign, is you know, is he expecting to be fired, is he driving to the White House, when's he going to meet with Trump is 
a lot of the jockeying of Rosenstein himself and those around him and those around the president for the post-firing positioning, right? And this is one example of an individual who came in as a political appointee, willing to work in the administration of Donald J. Trump, um, definitely implicated in a lot of things that might be widely condemned as, you know, violating norms and standards, and may now be trying to position himself for his post-Trump life. So, you know, maybe he's thinking about whether to resign or be fired in light of the Vacancies Act, but maybe he's thinking about it in terms of his own reputation. How he plays this is the last thing he can do to secure his legacy as deputy attorney general and his role in this Russia investigation. And he wants to be seen as a hero, not as an enabler. So I think sort of Tammy's point about it being a political calculation is a really important one. There's little bit of this sense that at some point we'll have crossed a particular threshold in the Mueller investigation where Trump can't harm it anymore, right? Enough people have cooperated or he's sort of, he's sufficiently hemmed in. And Well, we think we're going to get to that point, but do we know we're going to get to right, that like, point? There's a, there's this a is sense, the frog but, in the boiling water. Is, I, I do think this is a reminder, though, that we aren't, that the constraints here are still fundamentally political, that Trump can still do a lot to really, really harm this investigation, and we don't know what would happen in response. And I do think that means that Robert Robert Mueller has got to be living every day as if it might be his last. And so the interesting question might be if you were in Mueller's shoes and you were assuming that at any given moment you might be handed your your walking papers, what would you be doing in order to or in order to ensure the kind of that the investigation would would live on beyond you? Yeah, so I, I actually I actually think that's a really interesting point. And one of the uh, you know, one of the things that the president's long dance about firing Sessions and firing Rosenstein has given is it has given Mueller a lot of time to think about that question. And if you're if you're Bob Mueller, one really interesting question, you've had all this time, months and months and months to build your doomsday device in a kind of Dr. Strangelove fashion. What does that look like, right? So Bob Mueller, like the rest of us, was sitting there yesterday thinking, okay, today's Rod's last day. And presumably he was not without a game plan. Everyone in the escape pod. What happens if if Rod gets fired? What does that game plan look like? Um, I want to turn to some of the international questions of this with you, Sophia. How do you think, I mean, particularly in China, which is what you cover, but other world leaders have to be looking at this, not just palace intrigue, but, you know, our system is standing on the brink of several different, you know, paths toward a constitutional crisis, or at least, you know, if not a constitutional crisis, an all-consuming political crisis that has the effect of potentially distracting this administration um, at a time, potentially, of, okay, it's well, so distracted. I mean, I'm thinking like even more so. You know, this is this it's like is an ADD administration, right. With an additional. I mean, how do you think that foreign leaders, and particularly leaders in China, when we're going to talk in a bit about our relationship deteriorating relationship with China, are viewing what's happening here? And do you think do they look at this and say, I mean, cynically, oh, it just looks like power struggles, maybe in other countries too, that the United States this always thought that it's better than, or are they? see it as somehow a uniquely American kind yeah. of cock well, up? <laughs> <clears throat> well, I think the really interesting thing here is that in a very short span of time, you've seen relations totally shift. I mean, the West, what the U.S. used to stand for are things that concepts that it no longer 
uh, that you hear about that you no longer hear about from the mouth of Trump, right? Um, he's really pulled back into himself. He's retreated. He's taken America off the global stage in so many ways. And China has sort of wanted and trying to kind of fill that void. I think that's the big overarching picture that we need to consider and think about because of all the things that the U.S. has always stood for, human rights, free speech, open markets, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that a lot of other countries have often said, you know, issued for their own reasons. But as the U.S. continues to kind of falter in this way, I think it really um, begs the question, are there other systems politically, economically that could work better because the U.S. kind of is in a crisis mode? I mean, I've been in Washington for less than 12 hours and I've had two people already say that to me, that they feel like it's just kind of a total mm -hmm. crisis here. And when you're looking at these headlines coming out um, from outside the U.S., it's really hard to figure out what's actually going on. You know, it's all this jockeying. And it's hard to figure politicking. out what's going on here. <laughs> Yeah. And, I think, and I think I actually think, and we'll, we'll wrap this segment up, but I wonder if, I mean, I think, A, this this element of crisis, I mean, crisis is something that Donald Trump appears to enjoy operating in. And, it's and his it, MO. It's his MO. And I also think that politically, it works very well for him to actually keep Rod Rosenstein in that job, because now he has the ability to say, not only is this a witch hunt, but it's a witch hunt being led by the guy who tried to remove me from office. And it has a way of, it's just another element of corruption of the entire probe from from Trump's point of view. And so in some ways, I wonder if just keeping him there doesn't actually serve the broader narrative that the president has been pushing from the beginning, which is that it's corrupt, they're out to get me, and it's undemocratic. Absolutely. And I also think that he is domestically benefiting from this uncertainty, even as it's creating costs for his foreign policy and his relationships with other leaders in the way that Sophia is describing. They don't know what's coming out of Washington on any given day, and they don't know whether to trust what they hear. Um, it also makes them all look more stable, in better control. You know, President Xi, who has just sort of finished up a process of consolidation of his own control. <laughs> and, and you know, so he looks strong. Trump looks unbalanced. And, um, and it, if you're thinking of it in terms of a broader competition for influence in the world, that's a pretty good way to be. Well, that's an excellent segue, Tammy. <laughs> to talk, let's let's talk about, uh, especially now that we have Sophia here in the studio, this deteriorating U.S.-China relationship. Let, let's first talk about Sophia. Talk about. I mean, we I think most economists agree we're in a trade war. I mean, at this point, right? But they're fun and easy to win. They're fun and so easy to win, and the other guy just keeps hitting back. Uh, so most recently, the administration has announced was it was a two hundred billion and two hundred billion tariffs and two hundred yeah. billion dollars of goods uh, uh, going into China, and the Chinese are looking, if I understand it, for a reciprocal amount of goods to come this way to put tariffs on as well. But of course, they don't send as much stuff here, so they can't find as much to equal $200 billion. But nevertheless, I mean, it seems like they're kind of going through everything and looking for it. So there's no backing down, whereas we're all escalating this direction. I mean, talk to us about how you're seeing this and how you're reporting on this from China. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that this whole year, we've seen this very huge, long run up to today, to this $200 billion. That's this new round of tariffs that have been slapped on China from the U.S. And so I think it's something that 
was not totally unexpected, but the scale was is quite unprecedented. I mean, it's huge. It's like the biggest move, really, uh, from the U.S. side. And for China, I think there's a, a certain sense that this is getting to be far more than just a trade war. It's not about steel or aluminum or dumping or whatnot. It's something more along the lines, possibly, of the U.S. trying to contain China, China's growth and influence, just at the very moment it's seeking to try to step up and really grow its voice on the world stage. So I think that concern is pretty problematic for Beijing. Beijing has been trying, obviously struggling to make itself heard. I think China has grown so quickly that even itself couldn't have anticipated this day in 2018 that it would be so powerful in so many ways. So now China finally does have a seat at the adults table rather than the kids table, but also it doesn't sort of know how to position itself. And as it continues to try to grow and build its own foreign policy, you know, Belt and Road initiatives, etc., this is something that it's going to need to think about in terms of trying to make sure that its voice is heard, that its words are being taken seriously. And in that context, there's no way Absolutely not that China will bow to the U.S. So that's why you've continued to hear all this sort of retaliation and these really strong, aggressive words and tariffs of its own. But in a way, I think in terms of a tit-for-tat tariff situation, China's running out because, as you said, they don't have as much to slap tariffs on. Do you, and do you think – well, Tammy, to that, to that point – do we see an, an, an actual end point to this, right? I mean, what I still have yet to understand what, from the president's point of view, what brings this to a halt? What causes us to roll back these tariffs? I mean, what is what is the end game that we're shooting for? It's fair trade and balanced trade, but I'm not. I mean, frankly, I'm not even sure the president really understands what that means. So, I mean, is there any sense of like how this gets shut off? So President Trump doesn't even seem to understand that tariffs are essentially taxes that American consumers are paying. But he thinks the Chinese are paying. <laughs> so I, you know, I have very little confidence that he understands his own goals or what a desirable end state would be here. He doesn't like that we have a trade imbalance with China. Uh, and he wants to do something about that, but he's doing it at a cost to consumers that's escalating. And the phrase trade war is very apropos because the dynamics of imposition of tariffs as a method of coercion in trade policy, it's not unlike the escalatory dynamics that we see in violent conflict. It is difficult to stop once it is started. And stopping it requires both sides to look over the abyss, say, oh, we really don't want to pay the full costs of an all-out confrontation. We want to find a way together to back away from the edge. Of the cliff. And I think that because the US economy is not exactly doom zooming along, I mean, yes, it's on a very steady growth trajectory, but with a very, very gentle slope. Uh, and a lot of pockets of the country that are still in pain and being hurt worse by these tariffs, like the US agricultural sector, um, you know, this is, could cause a lot of pain to American consumers and to the American economy. And that's not good for President Trump. Um, if I had to, if I had to game it out in the grossest, most general terms without knowing a lot about the details on in either side's economy, I would say that the Chinese government has a lot more levers to control the impact of tariffs on their economy than the U.S. government has in our economy. Their economy is growing much more healthily than our economy. <laughs> and uh, so on balance, I'm guessing that we would probably blink first. But what I think is really interesting about what Sophia said is that 
two years ago, a lot of the China analysts in the United States were saying, oh, the Chinese economy is overheating, they're going to hit the wall, you know, and thinking of China not as this juggernaut that is the way it's described today. And today in the U.S., China is not only described as an economic juggernaut, but it is also described not merely as a rising power, but an adversarial rising power. And what's disappeared is the notion that by engaging the Chinese and trying to enmesh the Chinese in all these international institutions like the World Trade Organization, that we could facilitate the peaceful rise of China, quote unquote. What you're describing, Sophia, though, is not a China that's kind of bent on adversarial relationships with the United States and other great powers, but a China that's still figuring out its path. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's a line that's sometimes ignored. I mean, you've heard it just in the last year, the Trump administration has gone from describing China as a, quote, revisionist power to a, quote, strategic competitor. So the U.S., rightfully so, should be concerned about the rise of China, like many nations are. I mean, there's a lot of questions about the kind of foreign influence that they wield in other nations and how they go about doing that. That's not always the most transparent. Certainly the rise of AI, et cetera, that China is in many ways, the for, at the forefront of, you know, how they use that kind of technology, also a big question, right? They can use it for all sorts of really awful things, <laughs> in addition to making our lives better. So rightly so, I think the US and other Western nations should be concerned. But at the same time, China is also still trying to find its way. And it's nowhere near the sort of power and might and global influence that someplace like the US or the whole of the EU currently have, you know, in terms of being able to speak clearly and forcefully. All right, Ben. Can I ask a, a, so I was going to ask Sophia the question, almost the reciprocal question of the point that Tamara made. It seems to me that, that China is a sufficiently manufacturing-based economy that depends to an enormous degree on exports of relatively low-end manufactured goods. And the United States is an extremely diversified economy uh, that is, you know, a manufacturing powerhouse, but only in very high-end areas these days. And so my question is, isn't in an actual trade war between the United States and China, China has the ability to inflict a lot of pain on the United States if it really ratchets up. But it does not have the ability, this, but, but does it have the same ability to really punch the United States in the gut from a trade point of view that the United States has with respect to China? And, you know, Trump makes these idiotic comments like that trade wars are easy to win. But in the, in the, in the specific case of China, isn't there an asymmetric advantage in favor of the United States? So without necessarily knowing the end of what the Trump administration is trying to do, one thing that has come up more recently is that they are trying to push for more open market access when it comes to foreign firms, obviously American firms operating in China. It's been always a really tough regulatory environment, lots of barriers to entry, basically impossible. And if the Chinese government doesn't like you, they will kick you out. They will find a way to kick you out. So I think in terms of inflicting pain, it's not necessarily on a goods, you know, one for one sort of issue. It's more about whether or not China remains a place that American companies can continue to do business. 
Because if a company like, let's say, Alibaba is able to win the China market, and then they come to the U.S., open a whole bunch of plants, create a bunch of jobs, and they can win the U.S. market as well, that means their competitors from the U.S. side, like Amazon and Google, etc., they're at a far greater disadvantage because they don't have access to win the China market. And in many ways, it's a tough one for them because it's, you know, cultural differences, etc., Besides the regulatory challenges, I mean, it's hard for them already to get a good foothold. Um, so I think beyond just the goods, I mean, there's a lot of other things that China could do, theoretically. In terms of manufacturing, China's economy has shifted a little bit more. I mean, you're right that it's still kind of a, a manufacturing powerhouse, but it started to make a lot more high-end things. Um, and it's shifting. And in some way, actually, I think the potential quite positive change or impact um, of this trade war is that maybe China will shift its growth model more quickly than it had anticipated. I mean, it's something moving away from this export-led growth model is something that China has known it's had to do for a very long time. It's definitely tried to make amends in that direction. So actually, this trade war might push them more quickly to make those changes and put them in place so that that shift comes sooner than anticipated, which actually would be very good for China. I mean, it does seem like there are sort of two features here that are sort of specific to Trump's psychology. And that's, you know, this the notion that he uh, that he doesn't like being see, being seen, being perceived as unreasonable. So um, I was reading a quote um, uh, that the vice commerce and Chinese vice commerce minister uh, had said, which is which was that um, the U.S. has imposed such large trade restrictions. It's like they are holding a knife to our neck. Mm-hmm. Whenever I read it, I thought. God, I bet Trump loves hearing that, right? right? That's exactly the kind of image he wants to project. So so weirdly, sort of being perceived as, as rational and reasonable and fair and engaging in good faith, he doesn't want or care about any of that. And so I do think that it reduces kind of down to the, to the framing that Tammy offered, which is the political price. And, and it does seem as though it's difficult to sort of um, match the the cost to the, to the action such that actually consumers are going to make choices, uh, you know, in the voting booth, right? So, uh, you know, how do you get individual Americans to understand they're paying more money at Walmart because the president has done this? Their, you know, their bonus check is smaller because President Trump has done this. You know, at the same time, we see him, um, you know, subsidizing farmers, doing other things to sort of try and blunt, you know, frankly, the electoral and political consequences. And so I I do wonder how you overcome sort of that uh, that threshold to connect the, the the to such that he actually pays the kind of price that, that might change his behavior. Uh, so one interesting interesting thing about this quote that you mentioned about um, the knife to their throat, I think it's a smart move on China's part because they are most definitely playing the victim, right? The America, mm-hmm. the big bully, China, the small, you know, rising nation that's like trying to figure its way <laughs> out. You know, I mean, there's some truth to that, of course, but Lots of other nations are not happy with how the U.S. is pursuing this trade war. Like a lot of the things that Trump is trying to now push on strategically, you know, things like possible sanctions for the treatment of Muslims in China, you know, again, the open market access issue, security, you know, all these things. These are things that other countries are also annoyed by when it comes to China. So in that sense, while they don't agree with the Trump method of pushing on the trade front, they might be able to win some sort of other friends in the, in the sense that, you know, the, the U.S. is sort of victimizing China. Well, and on to the point of, I mean, <clears throat> needing friends, I mean, the president has made it clear throughout our negotiations with North Korea that he expects China, if not necessarily to be our partner in this, to basically, you know, 
help us influence North Korea in ways that that we want and believes that China kind of holds the key, or at least you said that in the past, to solving the issues with North Korea. I mean, it strikes me that getting into this kind of a trade war with the Chinese doesn't provide any obvious incentive for them to help us. So, I mean, are you seeing, Sophie, any places where this is having a deleterious effect on the North Korean negotiations, or is that just off on its own sort of track of crazy right now? (laughs) (laughs) So for the Chinese side, I think Beijing has always seen the North Korea thing off on its own track of crazy, (laughs) not at all related to trade. And so using trade to pressure China on anything else doesn't ever work. Conflating issues just doesn't work. Um, And for China, I mean, I would say that they've sort of kind of retreated in the last couple weeks, couple months when it comes to North Korea. I mean, you haven't seen very much on the China side now when, when it comes to North Korea. It's mostly U.S., South Korea, trying to find a way forward. Um, And I think China likes that. I don't think China wants to be in the spotlight when it comes to North Korea because it's a quite tough position for Beijing to be in, right? They don't want a nuclear North Korea, not not at all. But at the same time, it's a neighbor and they certainly don't want any tensions there. And and then on top of that, they're balancing this interest to grow their influence in Asia and not cave to the U.S. So there are a lot of different things going on in terms of how they consider uh, the response that they will have. Well, it sounds like the world is complicated, but the world should take heart because the president let them know today at the UN General Assembly that he's accomplished more in two years than probably any other president. It's going in, great. It's it's going great. He said his administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America, so true, he said. As the General Assembly audience burst into laughter, and then they, they thought they were in, at the improv. <laughs> they really. <laughs> they thought Jimmy Fallon wrote that speech. And what's so awesome about our president is that he wasn't phased at all. You know, your average potentate speaking from the rostrum at the UN General Assembly would be offended by that laughter. But he just took it in stride. He said, didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. And he right. went and then on. Sort of smile, and, then, and then took the sort of applause that came after that, like they're applauding for me right. for being magnanimous, which right. some of them probably were because he recovered. <laughs> but they still, nevertheless, they laughed at him when he said that. There was a delay while the translation kicked in, you could tell. Yes, which is always the fun part of speaking at the UN as yeah. they translate what you're saying into five other languages. Um, so Can we I know uh, just just – for anybody, do we know of any prior example of a U.S. president being laughed at at the U.N. General Assembly? Oh, Ben, they weren't laughing at him. They were laughing with him. They were laughing near him. <laughs> and I'm sure- In his general direction. In his general direction. I, I suspect that there are presidents who have deliberately inserted laugh lines into their U.N. General Assembly speeches, but- I don't know that this one was deliberate, although I will give credit to the White House press office, which has been duplicitous in so many ways on so many issues. But when they published the transcript, they had the laughter in there. They well, you don't take it out. So this, Tammy, this points up to like maybe like a, a, actually a serious point that's worth thinking about this speech versus last year's speech. So when he addressed the General Assembly at the previous UNGA This was the first time Donald Trump had spoken on a world stage like this, certainly to this body. And, you know, he talked about Little Rocket Man and escalations. And I mean, it it was quite bellicose and much of the language today was as well. But what I was struck by from like the laughter was they were looking at almost they were like seeing right through him. And they were saying, like, don't try that crap here. Yeah, actually, I 
I would say that this year's speech was less bellicose. And in certain ways, it actually demonstrated that this administration has been a little bit responsive to some of the criticism they've received, both for the substance of their policies and for the way it's framed and the effects that it's had. First of all, at the very beginning of the speech, when he talks about the successes that he has had on the North Korean nuclear question, he went out of his way to give a shout out to President Moon of South Korea, to Prime Minister Abe of Japan, and President Xi of China. In other words, thanks, my East Asian allies and uh, fellow uh, great power, which is something that he never would have done a year ago when he would go out of his way to diss allies at occasions like this. Similarly, He had a line in there when he was talking about America's relations in the Middle East and the partnership with the Gulf states where he kind of um, pointedly said that the Gulf allies are pursuing multiple avenues to ending Yemen's horrible, horrific civil war. In other words, understanding the intense criticism of the Yemen war, its humanitarian effects and the role of the United States in supporting it. And then he also had a line in there, which I have to say analytically is complete bullshit, but was an attempt to kind of respond to criticism about America's refusal to allow Syrian refugees into our country. Uh, He argued that the most compassionate policy is to place refugees as close to their homes as possible (laughs) to ease their eventual return to be part of the rebuilding process, which, as I say, is analytically a piece of crap, but... Um, at least shows that he's trying to be responsive. So I I thought it was interesting that throughout the speech, he actually seemed to want to explain to the rest of the world why he was doing things the way he was doing them and why it was good not just for America, but for, uh, as he put it, patriotism, prosperity, and pride. <laughs> so so I, I would say it was less bellicose. There were a couple of things in there that I wanted to highlight, though, that I thought were fascinating. One was this paragraph that was the clear synthesis of Stephen Miller and John Bolton in the speechwriting process. It was <laughs> the a- unholy union <laughs> of bad ideas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was the paragraph about the International Criminal Court, which we discussed on the podcast earlier. Um, So, you know, it's got this sort of really harsh language against the court. It has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, no authority. That's John Bolton. And then he goes on to say, we will never surrender America's sovereignty to an unelected, unaccountable global bureaucracy. We reject the ideology of globalism and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. That was the Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon kind of. Isn't it nice you can just <laughs> say globalism now without even uh, pretending? Yeah, I think he did that last year too, actually. <laughs> I mean, Timmy, what do you make? Hey, of- at least he didn't call them globalist cops. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It was a remarkable restraint. Very presidential. Would that be translated? <laughs> Timmy, <laughs> Timmy, what do you make of sort of the, um, you know, he doesn't mention Russia and sort of in a speech that largely focuses on questions of sovereignty and respect for the borders of one's neighbor, it sort of invites the question of how he views Russian activity and, and, and aggression in the region. Is it just that he he doesn't want to bring it up? Like, how, what are we supposed to make of that? So... <laughs> After the Helsinki press conference, 
one can't help but wonder whether his advisors thought maybe better not to talk just about Russia at all. Just, just don't <laughs> don't say the R word, Mr. <laughs> President. But there actually was one mention of Russia in the speech. Um, and it was about European dependence on Russian energy supplies as he is touting uh, America as an energy supplier and yelling at OPEC for keeping oil prices high. He is also praising Poland for leading the construction of a Baltic pipeline so that nations are not dependent on Russia to meet their energy needs. So the one and only mention of Russia is definitely in a competitive framework, but it has nothing to do with the U.S. homeland, our election integrity, or anything like that. I am curious how you think that other members of the Security Council, in particular, like China, read a speech like this. And, and it's and, so hot and cold on China in oh, the speech. Oh, it's so hot and cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk, talk, talk a bit about that. Yeah. So I thought it was kind of funny that he mentioned President Xi by name and said, you know, you know, I have great respect. Was the line he said he had great respect for Xi, and then he goes on to blast China for all the things he's blasted them before, <laughs> as if they're not Xi's fault. Right. There's somebody else's policy. So, you know, it's a complicated relationship. I mean, it's the U.S. and China. They've had this buildup over four decades, and it's been a pretty really, you know, it's been pretty tumultuous. And in just a very short span, I guess really in less than a year, it's been almost entirely dismantled. So I think China, again, going back to the point I made before when we were talking about the trade war, this concern that the U.S. is trying to sort of contain China, I think – in this sort of hot, cold, love-hate relationship, it just seems like a more plausible theory going forward, right? Mm -hmm. In just the last week, we've seen so many different things happen, right? These sanctions on China for buying Russian military equipment. We've seen the U.S. ordering Chinese state media to register as foreign agents. Yesterday, there was an arms sale to Taiwan. I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, if you want to piss off China, that is a quick way to do it. Yeah. So it's just happening really quickly. I mean, this literally, these things have happened in the last seven days. So I think this hot cold thing is not going away. I mean, who are we supposed to read as the audience for this, right? So whenever Trump is speaking, you know, often we, Tammy, you've talked in the past about how, you know, these speeches really are about a domestic audience and sort of it, it's hard to know, uh, it's 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 hard to translate sort of the, the contextual stuff. Is Trump really speaking to world leaders? Is he trying to justify his position? Are the ICC comments about justifying his conduct at home? Like, for either one of you, how, how do you take sort of who tr in Trump's mind to the extent he has anything in his mind? Who does he think he's speaking to? So I think that there are two ways to answer that question. One is a process-driven explanation and one is a politics-driven explanation. I It was – the speech was such an odd combination of – Stephen Miller esque bombastic anti globalist rhetoric, right on the one on the one hand, and then some very specific policy points about Poland, about Venezuela, about Syria, about Iran. Um, that it felt like a speech that was staffed better than last year's UN General Assembly speech, making that, progress, right? That, <laughs> that maybe there. all those offices in the National Security Council actually got to put forward proposed talking points on their issues and a few sentences actually worked their way into the text. On the other hand, though, I, I think that this is a president who last year's speech was about making an impression and declaring a break. And this year's speech, okay, he's been in office for almost two years. And so there has to be a little bit more of, I'm talking about my record, I'm justifying why it's a good one. And I think that's important for that at-home audience as much as it is for the foreign audience. He also just seemed, maybe I'm just projecting on this, but he seemed more at ease. 
and a bit more confident to me. I mean, he also has seemed weirdly restrained in the past two weeks, which is a whole other kind of thing that I decaf. Well, They've yeah, been giving I mean, he, him decaf. I mean, for Trump, he has taken it down the past couple of weeks. But I mean, there's something about I mean, he's always he's always strange when he gives scripted speeches, and you feel like it's someone else. But there, I don't know. I have to imagine he's in New York. There are world leaders there. Um, you know, he certainly felt confident enough to get up on the stage and assert the kind of thing that he would normally reserve for. A domestic audience, which is, you know, I'm the greatest president there's ever been. But he also goes on a weird rant about Kavanaugh. He makes this comment about, you know, the second accuser, you know, doesn't have anything. She was drunk, right? So even was in, that in the speech? Was no. it in the speech? Oh. It was afterwards. No. Okay. Afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I recant everything I said. <laughs> I don't want to overly award points, right? On on sort of uh, how restrained, how sort of mature we we've been seeing him lately. I read the report card side of things is definitely, you know, going to the midterms, like what what I've done, all the great things I've done right. for all of you Americans. You know, it's... Well, and also, if you're an American who has been watching Trump foreign policy and it seems chaotic and uh, running in all different directions and he's started these trade wars and they might be hurting my profession and I don't know how it's going to end... Then I think the message of the speech to that person is, no, really, there's a plan. I've got it all figured out. Just wait. You'll see that I'm right. Um, there was one other bizarre component of the speech, though, which is when he started talking about Venezuela, he went on this rant against socialism and how all countries have to be vigilant against the threat of socialism. And I thought – The Norwegians are like, what? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, that was the part where I was really like, okay, who thought it was important for this to be in there? That is strange, yeah. And, and yeah. is it directed against social democrats in Europe? Is it sort of a surreptitious Steve Bannon sneak it in kind of thing? Like or, pumping up the Orban type factions or something? Yeah, or is it really, you know, no, there are very few things I believe in, but one of them is free markets. You know? <laughs> That's an interesting addition, yeah. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Sophia, you are an object for all of us this week. I hope you don't mind being edge of an objectified <laughs> in that way. We're just so glad to have you. And you brought scotch, too. I brought scotch. So you brought us an, an object as well. <laughs> <clears throat> Duty-free scotch, which is pretty nice. Is that a meta object when Sophia, the object, brings, brings an, an object? object? I don't think we've ever had an object bring an object to the show. <laughs> meta object lesson. Meta object <laughs> lesson. Ben, you're holed up at home, but I don't know if you uh, if you have any kind of I object. do have have an object <laughs> tell us so during hurricane florence uh amy fiscus uh a new york times reporter tweeted out the following npr interviewed a robert Mueller as a man on the street in the hurricane and i briefly had a heart attack and this made some of us uh sitting around at lawfare uh, scratch our heads and think huh Wonder how many other times some rando named Robert Mueller has been quoted uh, about something. And so uh, our intrepid intern, Victoria Clark, went on a Robert Mueller hunt and found all the Robert Mullers who are, have been quoted uh, about all manner of things. One of them answers hundreds of questions on Quora, which, you know, for the yes. famously tight-lipped Bob Mueller is not something he's supposed to be doing. One of them uh, has art hanging in a gallery in Washington. 
One of them writes poetry. And so we are today, by the time you hear this episode, there will be the compendium of uh, Robert Mueller comments on lawfare combined with uh, the response from the Office of Independent Co- uh, Office of Special Counsel. That's great. <laughs> what what's the response to that? <laughs> How does one respond? You're going to have to you're going to have to read the article to find out. <laughs> I can imagine what it is. Look, we're doing important work at lawfare. Yes, clearly. Uh, I'm sure it's about the poems. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's the actual Mueller. Susan, what's your um, My object lesson is my favorite attendee at the UN General Assembly, which is the three-month-old baby of the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Oh, this was the best right. news of the day. <laughs> One of the first women um, to give birth while running a country, I think in several decades. Um, so just uh, an inspiring image uh, for working mothers everywhere. Um, also, awesome. they gave the baby a little UN attendee badge <laughs> and named her the first baby of New Zealand. <laughs> just, just very cute and a little bit of, uh, of happiness and levity in, uh, in an otherwise serious event. Could she be the Secretary General's special baby representative. Do you think Trump was mad because there was another baby there? <laughs> oh, ouch! Toddlers always getting all the attention. Babies around. Yeah. Uh, I have an object. It's uh, fried chicken and waffles. Yum. Which I want. I want, want to be advised. These are the best fried chicken and waffles I, I've ever tasted, and maybe. They, these these could be vying for the best in America. They look uh, pretty artistic. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. Um, I had them in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was in Louisville because I was listening to a speech by Gina Haspel, the CIA director. Uh, her first uh, her first big public speech, first public speech at all as director, and she chose Louisville, which is where she graduated from. By the way, went to the University of Kentucky for three years and then transferred to Louisville and graduated from there. So it's like, you know, are you really a cardinal? But she claims she is one. Uh, Anyway, not the most traditional place that you would expect the CIA director to do her first uh, big tour, but gave a remarkable speech in which she said that the past 17 years of counterterrorism had justifiably overshadowed much of the CIA's core work of collecting intelligence on big nation state adversaries, including Russia and China. And now they were getting back to that business. And then proceeded to not at all detail how they're doing that. Which <laughs> we're you on it, seen. guys. <laughs> yeah, we're on it. Uh, it was an interesting speech. It was remarkable for its brevity uh, and lack of specifics. But I do think it's at least worth uh, sort of noting that this CIA director has uh, stated publicly now what I think has been pretty clear for the past couple of years, which is that the agency is trying to get past this era of kind of paramilitary counterterrorism operations and getting back to what it was initially uh, set up to do, which I always find interesting strategic because- Strategic intelligence. Strategic intelligence, which I always find interesting because you know, at its core in the OSS, it really was a paramilitary organization too. So maybe the CIA has just never been able to decide what it wants to be. Anyway, make a mark that's, of it. That's how an analyst like Jack Ryan ends up jumping mm-hmm. out of airplanes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> By the way, I'm, I'm, I still have not watched past episode one of that show. Yeah, just don't. I'm watching Ozark. It's so good. Just go watch Ozark. Okay, this is the second week in a row that you've mentioned yeah. Ozark on the podcast. It's so. really good, you guys. I mean, really. And if you want to talk about counter-narcotics or making money off of narcotics, which is really more what the show's about, it has a security dimension. 
you too can be a money launderer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Tying it all together. It all sounds incredibly straightforward and entirely anxiety-inducing. I don't think I'd be cut out for it, but he makes it look so easy. <laughs> uh, almost as easy as this podcast. No, just kidding. But it is a joy. But it's at the end, you guys. Sophia, we were so glad you're here for this. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare page on the internet through the Google. The World Wide Web. (laughs) It's there. All of those things are there. You you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. It's a great way to help people find the show. Our audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Rod Rosenstein's Lonely Hearts Club Band. (laughs) Okay, so that's probably my favorite. (laughs) You like that one? Then you are definitely doing backup for that one, Sophia. (laughs) (laughs) On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and our great dear friend Sophia Yan, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.